May I speak in the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Our reading today from the Acts of the Apostles just happens to be the one set for evening prayer. And it seems to speak very directly to what we're doing to celebrate the beginning of the ministry of Richard James in this church and city. Paul the Apostle has just left Athens and has arrived to exercise a new ministry in Corinth. Well, I don't think Paul had a welcoming service like this one, for there was no congregation to receive him. His task was to build the church in Corinth pretty much from scratch. And he did find a couple there whom he knew, Aquila and Priscilla, And they get a mention in Romans um, 16.3 as members of the small Christian church in Rome. They were Jewish converts to this new faith. And as we heard, the Emperor Claudius expelled all Jews from Rome. And we know that um, not just from Paul's testimony, but from the Roman historian Tacitus as well. And Aquila and Priscilla came to settle in Corinth. And Paul stays with them. He finds a home, a sort of rectory, but not quite like Holy Trinity's rectory. I'm going to come back to this portion of the Acts of the Apostles later, for I think this scripture has real lessons for us today. But first of all, I want to welcome Richard and Carol to the Diocese of Norwich and to Holy Trinity, also to welcome their wider family and friends who've come to support them. I know, uh, although I've not met them all yet, that uh, all four of their children are here. A particular welcome to their daughter Anne, newly married to Tom and Rebecca at uh, university, to Matthew, who'll be continuing his education here in Norwich. And it's a homecoming in some measure um, for Richard. As many of you will know, his faith was nourished and nurtured in this church in his teenage years before he went off to train as a doctor in the flesh pots of Cambridge. And, uh, and there, of course, he met another medic, Carol, um, before offering for ordination because uh, God's call to ministry was so compelling. And I know Carol has been very much part of Richard's ministry over the years, and we hope and pray they'll find great happiness here. Our reading from the Acts of the Apostles, concluded with the words, Paul stayed there for a year and six months. (laughs) Well, I'm devoutly hoping that that's one way in which you will not emulate St. Paul in Corinth. And uh, there's not much evidence of it because you've served for 19 years at Christ Church Cockfosters. And uh, I know uh, many people were grieved to see Richard and Carol leave. It's wonderful to welcome so many people from Christchurch Cockfosters here in Holy Trinity today. Cockfosters, for me, uh, is one of those mythical places. Um, it is for lots of people who use the London Underground. Um, as the northern terminus of the Piccadilly line, I've travelled on many trains destined for Cockfosters. But I'm sorry to say I've never been there in my life. <laughs> I dare not compare myself with Moses glimpsing but not entering the promised land. 
I don't want to sort of be presumptive, but um, I am sure Cockfosters is a land of promise, and I will get there one day. Um, Richard, you come to another land of promise for the gospel. Um, For me, there's another reason um, to welcome Richard to the Diocese of Norwich, since the Diocese of London has pinched several of our best young clergy in recent years, so it's good to get the flow going in the other direction, Um, especially on a free transfer. That's that's the sort we like. (laughs) Norwich City need more of them. Now, before I return to the scriptures, there's a few notes of gratitude to sound. Um, We continue to pray for Alan and Natalie Strange in their life and their ministry in Amsterdam and give thanks for all they gave to this church and diocese. And thanks are also due to Will Warren for sustaining the life of this church so well and so selflessly during an extended interregnum. Mike Buck and Sandra Isaac, your church wardens, and Amanda Wade, I think warden as the interregnum began, have done a huge amount, as has Richard Beach as lay chair of the PCC. And then to your readers, your AWAs, your pastoral and prayer ministers, too, many thanks. But above all, I thank the people of Holy Trinity for your faithfulness, and I pray that God will do many new things among you in this fresh chapter in the mission and ministry of this great church. So let's return to Acts 18. Um, The best estimate for Paul's arrival in Corinth from Athens is that it was somewhere between AD 49 and AD 51. Less time had passed since the resurrection of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit than Richard has just spent in his ministry in Cockfosters. So when we're reading Acts 18... We're that close to this explosion of divine action which gave birth to the Christian church. Paul's come from Athens. And we know the brilliance of Paul's preaching there. We've read about it in Acts 17. Brilliantly illustrated in in front of the Areopagus, Paul sees an inscription to an unknown god. And he proclaims to the Athenians that God is not unknown. He's made himself known in Jesus Christ through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. It seems a brilliant sermon by anyone's standards. Remember that although one or two people, as it says in Acts 17, heard him gladly, the majority scoffed. There's no evidence despite his preaching, that Paul ever founded a church in Athens. Good gospel preaching does not always succeed, even when it's faithful. In fact, it's well into the second century before we know of the first Christian community in Athens. So Paul shook the dust off his feet and went to Corinth. And the city of Corinth was virtually destroyed in the second century BC and refounded as a Roman colony by Julius Caesar. And it was, of course, as many of you will know, a great trading center, a highly cosmopolitan place. There was a substantial Jewish community there, but also cults of Eastern deities. These days we would call it multi-faith and multicultural. 
And in Corinth, Paul's work produced a very flourishing church, of which we gain a clear picture in those two letters to the Corinthians, which form such a central part of the New Testament. And as I said earlier, um, we've heard that Paul stayed with Aquila and Priscilla, Prisca in Romans um, 16.3, but that's simply a, a diminutive of her name. And like Paul himself, certainly Aquila and perhaps Priscilla too were tent makers. They worked together by trade. They were tent makers, 18.3. And in antiquity, a tent maker was rather more like a leather worker in our own age. Um, not just tents, but coats, garments too. They were professionals with a, a real business. And it might surprise us that a man as learned as Paul should practice a trade, but of course Jewish scholars were not paid for their services to the community. They often supported themselves in humble professions, and Paul prided himself on being financially independent. And very likely the church first grew in Corinth. How can we tell how it grew? But the fact that what they did, that they worked together, is recorded suggests it was in Paul and Aquila's workshop where Corinthian customers first heard the name of Jesus Christ. Paul couldn't stop himself speaking about his saviour. And he was at his most persuasive in the synagogue. We read in 18.4, every Sabbath he would argue in the synagogue and would try to convince Jews and Greeks. And then we heard Paul's friends, Silas and Timothy, they arrive in Corinth from their own mission in Macedonia. Remember, Paul wasn't the only missionary. There was lots of missions, separate missions going on. And when they arrive from Macedonia, it says in 18.5, Paul then devoted himself entirely to preaching the word. Entirely to preaching the word. In other words, he gave up tent making. And Why? Well, it's very likely that Silas and Timothy brought financial contributions from other young churches which Paul had founded towards Paul's physical needs. It is, I like to tell you, the New Testament equivalent of parish share, which is why you should love paying your parish share to the diocese. The offerings of other Christians enabled Paul to expand his ministry. That's why they gave it. That's why we have stipendary ministers like Richard today, supported by the gifts of Christian people so that their whole time may be given to the mission and ministry of God's church. That's what we're celebrating at Richard's institution here tonight. Richard is to give his whole time to proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And even in this brief passage from Acts, we see this development in Paul's ministry Indeed, in New Testament ministry, we're doing something deeply rooted in the New Testament tonight. A few weeks after I was uh, ordained as a priest, uh, no less than 41 years ago, it's frightening to think about, a little book was published, contains no more than 80 pages, and its title was simply, Good News, 
And it had two authors who collaborated on it, uh, both now departed this life, John Fenton, who was a New Testament scholar and a theological college principal, and Michael Hare Duke, a bishop in Scotland. And they wrote this little book to get to the essence of the gospel. What is this good news we keep going on about? How can we express it? And I read it at the time, and uh, at the very beginning of my ministry, and it, it influenced me a lot. And I remember that the authors drew up a list of tests to find out if what we were hearing was the gospel or not. These days, the government and nearly every organization seems very keen on tests. So um, perhaps it ought to be republished, this little book. And the tests you may apply, not just to Richard's new ministry among you, but to your life in this church seem to me to be still relevant to see whether you're both hearing and living the gospel. And the first test of the gospel is, is this new? The gospel is always novel, always fresh, even for those who may have heard it before. Hearing the gospel should make you think, well, I never thought of it that way. The truth is, you may well have done, but you may have forgotten it or perhaps even forgotten you heard it in the first place. That's the biggest danger for many of us who go to church regularly and think we know the gospel. For there's something about human beings that means the gospel can be heard and received, but we can't always hold on to it, because human sin and failure get in the way. So each time the gospel is heard, it should be heard as if it's never been heard before. It should never lose its freshness. And we don't say when the crocuses come into flower or the daffodils bloom, it's a bit of a bore to see them again. We don't complain it's the same old spring all over again. We are delighted by the freshness, the newness of life. People remarked on the novelty of what Jesus had to tell them. What's this? A new teaching. The very beginning of Mark's gospel. And Remember, Paul was asked by those sceptical and unbelieving Athenians, may we know what this new teaching is which you present? They didn't want new teaching. They knew it all. That's why no church was founded there. And Paul found that in Christ he'd experienced something so new that as a Jew he started to refer to the old covenant when he looked back on the tradition in which he'd been brought up a term no Jew would normally have used. The gospel is so new, it makes what's gone before look old. And why is this a challenge to us? Because the problem is, in our churches, we can look very old indeed. The buildings can, we can. For we're instituting Richard to a ministry 2,000 years on from the beginning of Paul's fresh and new ministry in Corinth. And we even speak of the gospel sometimes as the old, old story. Yet the genius of Christianity is that the old story is new every time it's told and in all the circumstances that it is lived. And one of the most wonderful banners I've ever seen set up in a church was at a children's event where they created a banner which simply proclaimed, God is forever young, for he is forever young and forever new.
But newness on its own isn't enough. What other tests are there for the gospel? And the second one is less comfortable than the first. Does it challenge? Does it offend anyone? In Mark's gospel, we're told that when Jesus taught in the synagogue, many were astonished and took offense at him. Jesus himself says that anyone who doesn't take offense at him is blessed. The gospel, remember, is an affront to the way we live. It upsets the things we take for granted. The first shall be last and the last first. The laborer who only does an hour's work at the end of the day gets paid the same as those who slave for hours on end. You try setting up a business, wouldn't that principle? The rich man finds it hard to enter the kingdom of heaven, as hard as pushing a camel through the eye of a needle. The prodigal son, having wasted his money on frivolous living, comes home and is given a great party, while his elder brother, serious and industrious, isn't given a party at all. The gospel constantly challenges the instinctive way we think. And it strikes us, and those who do not believe, first as unjust. It takes faith to receive it, because it is always excessive. It goes a long way beyond what is reasonable and fair. It demands more of us than we offer, and yet its promises are more than we can expect. The meek will inherit the earth. The pure in heart will see God. The peacemakers will be called the children of God. The poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of heaven. The offense is great, but the offer is outstanding. And that's why in our mission strategy in this diocese, we've taken Paul's words to the Ephesians as the strap line, more than we can imagine, in Ephesians 3.20, where we're told that God, who by the power at work within us, is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. There is no limitation on what God can do. And then a final test. Does the gospel bring joy? Joy. A few years ago, I was preaching at one of our churches on what was called Back to Church Sunday. It was one, I think, of the first um, mission initiatives of the whole of the Church of England in the 21st century. And it was valuable because um, it did bring people back to church, but it tended to focus on those who'd been to church in the past rather than those who'd had no contact with us. And in this particular Norfolk church, a huge amount of of effort had been put in to invite people who didn't normally come. And around 50 of those who'd received invitations took up the uh, the opportunity to come that day and join this congregation. There was a lot of effort to welcome them. The worship was crafted well, I thought. Afterwards, I noticed rather better cakes than normal were served and uh, really proper coffee. Why is it that the coffee is so dire in so many of our churches? Anyway, that's another point. Um, And as I talked with some of these new people, I was um, 
struck that a number of them commented on the laughter, the friendliness, the sheer joy of the congregation in each other's company. They thought it was unusual. Was it put on specially for Back to Church Sunday that these Christians looked as if they enjoyed being there? And none of it struck me as anything out of the ordinary. But it was a reminder of the huge difference in the perception of church between those who never go and what I think is the current reality. The perception of long, morose faces. Well, you do occasionally see them in church as elsewhere. That's the perception of many outside. But the reality I see in this diocese is that many of our church communities where the gospel is truly found possess a great deal of joy. And in the Acts of the Apostles, the typical convert to Christianity hears the gospel, is baptized, and it always says, goes on their way rejoicing. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, St. Paul tells the Galatians. And first in the list of the fruits of the Spirit is love. And of course, in many ways, that's the test of the gospel which measures all the rest. Does it promote love? The gospel releases us from self-centeredness. That's why it's seemingly so unjust to some people. The freedom to love is what we're made for. Anything that claims to be the gospel but doesn't or cannot promote the love of Christ and our love for each other cannot be the gospel at all. So what are my hopes for Holy Trinity and for Richard in his new ministry among you? Well, I hope and pray that at Holy Trinity people will continue to hear something of God's grace in Christ which they think they've never heard before even those of you who have worshipped here for years and years and years. Something fresh, something new. I hope it will be a gospel that invites them to live extravagantly, to believe they're loved by God in Jesus Christ more than they can ever realise or imagine. And I hope it will be a gospel that goes beyond all reasonable expectations and challenges the complacency with which we're frequently content to live. And I hope it will make for joyful and loving people a sign in themselves of resurrection life in Christ. For the risen Christ came that we may have life and have it in all its abundance. Christ's gospel has been preached in this church for many years, but it is still the newest, freshest, and most valuable thing around. Amen.